Could you please turn in your Bibles, open them up with me at the book of Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, one of the minor prophets. And let's open up the Word of God at this chapter. I also would bid you welcome. And we trust the Lord will bless every heart and soul in the gathering here and those online and meet with us as we come before the Lord and we worship Him as He has bid us do. And they will touch our hearts in this time together today. I will add my own words of sympathy to those already expressed. And we trust the Lord will comfort all who mourn and undertake. So Micah chapter 5, and let's hear the Word of God as we turn to it. We'll bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll come to read from this chapter. Let's all pray. Our Heavenly Father and our Eternal God, we bless Thee for Thy presence among us. We thank Thee for coming near, for the lifting up of praise to Thee and prayer to Thee. Lord, the announcements, the notices concerning Thy work here and our work in general. And, O God, we pray that Thou wilt abide with us as we come now to this time, the central feature of all worship, the preaching of the Word of God. We ask, O Lord, that Thy Spirit will rest upon us, that His power will be known, His help and grace will be given, both to the preacher and to the hearer. And so, Lord, cover us beneath the shadow of Thy wing, and come alongside, speak to every soul, do a work of grace. May Christ be magnified. We ask all this in His name, for His sake, and for God's eternal praise. Amen and amen. Micah chapter 5, let us hear the Word of God. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid seeds against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, <coughs> excuse me, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel." whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man, and that of course is Christ, shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread on our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And we'll end there at verse 7. We know the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. I want to focus your minds today on verse number 2 of this chapter, a very well-known verse to many, and we trust the Lord will bless our hearts as we consider 
what this verse says to us. Now, I am sure that most of us have heard or even used the phrase, put on the map, a phrase that means to make famous or to make well-known. It is a phrase that may be used of a person, of a place, or of a thing. That expression dates from the early 1900s. It was initially actually used of a certain place that was previously viewed as being too small or too insignificant to put on a map. However, due to some event, we're not even sure what the event was, but due, due to some event associated with that obscure place, an event that brought knowledge of the place and fame to that location, it was literally put on the map thereafter. So that's how that expression came about, put on the map. In ancient Bible times, Bethlehem in the land of Judah was largely very, very insignificant. Our text informs us, as you will have noticed, that Bethlehem was little among the thousands of Judah. The word little also could be read small, not only in terms of size, but again, using the word insignificant, in terms of significance, it was little, it was small. It didn't amount to much. It wasn't very important. The same words actually used the word little in Psalm 68 and verse 27, where reference is made to little Benjamin, that is, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was actually the smallest and the least important of the tribes of Israel. And so it was therefore regarded as not holding really any uh, prominence in the affairs of Israel. And likewise, Bethlehem was so little, so small in every sense that it was not regarded as being worthy of any mention, really, or of any prominence in comparison with the more famous or well-known cities in the land of Judah or in the land of Israel as a whole. However, through the fulfillment of the prophecy that is contained in our text today, apart from Jerusalem itself, there is no location in Israel worthy of more fame than the town of Bethlehem. As intimated already, this verse does, does contain a prophecy. It's a prophecy, as you know, as you can see and read, of the birth or the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with Bethlehem becoming the place where the Savior was born. It became the location of the greatest miracle, therefore, that has ever taken place on the face of this earth, the miracle of the Son of God coming into the world, the miracle of God being manifest in the flesh in the little town of Bethlehem. That miracle took place. There is no doubt that the Lord was born in that small town, maybe even only a village. The full verification of that fact is found in New Testament Scripture in many places. John 7 and verse 42, uh, verse 42 we read these words, The Scripture saith that Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was. 
In Luke 2 verse 4, part of our reading this morning, earlier, we read of Joseph and Mary going on to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And then in that passage, verses 6 and 7, show us that he was born and he was laid in a manger about two years later. And remember that the wise men did not come at the exact time when the Lord was born. They came about two years later on. And when Herod inquired of the wise men as to the location of the birth of the Messiah, we find in Matthew 2 verse 6 that the scribes immediately quoted this verse from Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. And so there's absolutely no doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. That should mean something to us, I would suggest to you. If you have any interest in the Lord or His early days or those matters concerning His coming into the world, well, surely Bethlehem should take on a whole new meaning in our minds. And so without being irreverent, the Lord's birth or the Lord's incarnation truly put that little town on the map, in the minds of multitudes. It is my purpose today to consider this verse with this wonderful prophecy of our Savior's birth in Bethlehem. Without doubt, it's a prophecy that focuses the minds of the Lord's people upon Jesus Christ. Its words do that. Its terms do that. It gives Him precedence, therefore, over the place. Oh yes, Bethlehem's important it has a prominence because the Lord was born there, but the place must take secondary place, uh, secondary importance to the one who was born there. And therefore, we want to look at the verse from that angle. We'll look at it in three separate ways. Number one, we have in this text the Lord in His Christ, in His humility. Notice some very important words in this verse that point us to the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. With reference to Bethlehem, the text states, Out of thee, that's Bethlehem, shall he come forth unto me. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me. Now the person who is speaking is God, God the Father, to be precise, and Long ago through Micah, through his servant Micah, he, proph he prophesied, he predicted that a person would come out of Bethlehem, the Messiah in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in coming out of Bethlehem, the Lord's humility in being born there in that obscure place, little among the thousands of Judah, the Lord's humility is actually underlined by the very fact of the place where he was born, the humility of his birth. It is underscored by the fact that he wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in Zion, the city of David, in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. We will see more about that and the reason why he had to be born there. But you see, this is a reminder to us of his humility. Now those words unto me, those specific words unto me spoken by the Father tell us that the humility of the Lord was within the will of the Father for the Son. That's the point to notice. It says here so clearly, Out of thee shall he come forth unto me. And so Christ came forth in a certain way 
for the Father's sake, or more especially and more specifically, in order to do the Father's will. And therefore, he humbled himself, signified by the place where he was born. He humbled himself to come to do the will of his Father. And so this text reminds us of the humility of our Lord. We remember his own words in John 4. And these are very uh, prominent words in John's Gospel. They're found a number of times similar in nature. He says there in John 4, 34, our Lord Jesus Christ, My meat, what I live on, what I consume, what I want to do, what is God's will for me? My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and finish His work. Ah, my dear friend, there is the very foundational reason why our Lord humbled Himself and came into that little place called Bethlehem because He was subject to the Father's will. He delighted in the Father's will, and He came to do the Father's will. But the Father's will meant that He must be marked by humility. We think of that great passage that our brother, Mr. Stewart, has been already covered in his study in Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 6 through to 9. Let me just show you those verses, remind you of them. Philippians 2, verse number 6, it says in that verse, who being, and it literally reads, in a form of God. That's Christ in His pre-existent condition. He was in a form of God, namely the second person of the Godhead. But what did He do? Though that were true of Him, He made Himself of no reputation. He took on Him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men, and so on. And so, the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ is something that Micah's prophecy really underlines. That place that was little, insignificant, unknown, in a, in a sense, among the thousands of Israel, it was the will of God that Jesus Christ would be born there. That's the, the basic reason why He was born in Bethlehem, to signify His humility that he came not surrounded by the hosts or to present himself even as a king, but he came to take the lowly station, to humble himself as a man and become a man, all in order to secure redemption for the likes of you and me. And brethren and sisters, we must go on our minds to Bethlehem this morning and see the one who came forth unto the Father to do the Father's will and humble himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, let us notice, therefore, that it was entirely suitable that Christ in his humility condescended to be born in Bethlehem. That becomes even more clear when we trace some references to Bethlehem as history in Scripture. And there are some other places in the Scripture that we find reference made to this little place. And we find in those references that in each case there's an association in what is said with lowliness and humility and sorrow and pain and need and even destitution. It's a remarkable study just to look at how Bethlehem 
stands in Scripture. I want to take you to three particular verses, so please go with me to Genesis 35 and the verse number 16. Genesis 35 and the verse number 16. Let's turn there and we will look at this passage. We notice here the event of, of uh, Rachel approaching childbirth. It says, Genesis 35, 16, and they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. Did you notice in Micah 5, 2, that it speaks there of Bethlehem Ephratah? And this is the very same word, only written this way. They came a little way to Ephrath, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. So the first mention of Bethlehem, this is the first time you will read in the Bible of Bethlehem. And you've often heard preachers say that there's a law of interpreting the Bible called the law of the first mention. And it's an important law. It sets up a pattern for something or a person or an event or even a place. Here's the first time in the Bible you're going to find Bethlehem, and so that's important just to note. But go down to verse number 18. It came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Here we have it. Ephrath, or Ephrathah, is the very same place as Bethlehem. And so what we find here is a context of sorrow and heartache for, for Jacob over the death of his beloved wife Rachel right in childbirth and with her dying breath she named this little boy Benoni which means, as you can see in the margin of your Bible, if you have such a facility, the son of my sorrow. That's a singular name, a singular event, actually. Uh, what's happening here? Rachel's death and childbirth, naming her son as she dies. And she calls him Benoni, the son of my sorrow. And my friend, there's a little prophetic thought there, in a sense, a very real sense, of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ may well be called Benoni, because He is the Son of Sorrow. Do you remember what Isaiah writes in his great chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, in verse number 3, for it says he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so Bethlehem, the first place we come to, that location in the Bible takes us to a Beth dead, takes us to sorrow and grief and the birth of a little boy who's called Benoni, who points forward to our Savior. Whenever our Savior was born, do you remember what old Simeon said to his mother, that is to Mary, in Luke chapter 2? He said there, as you will find in Luke 2, in those verses 34, 35, he said to Mary, a sword shall go through thine heart also. And he was referring to the fact that she had given birth to the man of sorrows and that she herself would taste sorrow just as Rachel tasted sorrow. And Jacob tasted sorrow. And the pointer forward was to the man of sorrows. And the one who was acquainted with grief, 
Luke 2, you find that, as I say, 34 and 35. And that's why I say that Mary could have called Jesus Benoni. He is the son of my sorrows because I am going to suffer as Mary did suffer as a result of bringing forth the Son of God. You remember the last time in the Gospels where you see Mary. It's in John 19. And where is she? She's standing by His cross. So, in the Gospels, the first time just about you meet Mary, a sword, she's told, is going to go through her soul. The last time you see her in the Gospels, she's standing by the cross of her Son. What a reminder to us today, not only the depths of sorrow into which Mary descended, but into which Jesus Christ plunged becoming Benoni to His people, that we might be saved from what? From the sorrows of hell. Do you see this? Why did the Lord come to Bethlehem? Why did He come to that place that is first mentioned in the context of death and in the context of sorrow? A little boy born with a name that uh, memorializes the issue of sorrow. It's all because He came to save the likes of us from the sorrows that sin brings. But do you know, if you'll just stay in Genesis 35, if you're still there, look a little farther down that, or in that passage, and notice something remarkable. In verse number 18, as it refers to the passing of Rachel and the naming of the child Benoni, it says in the close of the verse, but his father called him Benjamin. And that's the name that this boy then retained, Benjamin. But what does Benjamin mean? It means the son of my right hand. And the prophecy concerning Christ there is now carried out to another, and a wonderful degree. Because Christ is Benoni from the vantage point of His humiliation, but we can see the Lord in the name Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Is that not what the Father said concerning His blessed Son? In Psalm 110, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Amen and women, we rejoice today that while the Lord came, into the context of sorrow and humiliation and suffering and death even. He didn't stay there. Benoni became Benjamin. And the first reference to, Benja or to Bethlehem tells us all this, this wonderful development of truths concerning our Savior. That's the first place we have looked at, Genesis 35. But go now to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth's little book, the first chapter of Ruth, and the verse number one, and once more we're looking at Bethlehem. It says, It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This verse introduces the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story that is marked by tragedy and sorrow as well. Verse 3, it says there, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left and her two sons. And verse number 5, Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Here is Ruth. I know Naomi's in view, but Ruth's also in view. 
Naomi is a widow, Orpah is a widow, but Ruth becomes a widow. And therefore, in this setting, we see a sorrowing widow destitute with a bleak future, but then something wonderful happens there at Bethlehem. And it's signaled in the closing words of verse number 6. It says, The Lord visited His people in giving them bread. Now let me just pause and say something here. By the way, Ruth became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. She's mentioned in his genealogy. Matthew 1, verse number 5, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. So this girl Ruth, this widow, this grieving, sorrowing widow becomes an ancestress of our Savior. But it's important to point out at this stage the meaning of the name Bethlehem. And I'm sure many of you will know what it means. It means the house of bread. Beth, or as the Hebrew would say, bait. And then lehem, the word for bread, the house of bread. But in verse number 1, we find that there's a famine there at Bethlehem. And this man, this man Elimelech, instead of waiting and proving God, he, he, he flees from Bethlehem. He leaves the house of bread. God called it the house of bread as a sign of something wonderful to come. We're going to say that with the Lord's help. So he leaves the house of bread. He went to Moab. In the Bible, Moab always signifies the world and worldly things and worldly provision and all that the world promises. But you see, when he got to Moab, the promise was found to be empty. Moab did not fulfill Elimelech's uh, expectations at all. And he dies there, and he leaves his own wife a widow, and his daughter-in-law is now a widow. And the whole thing is empty and destitute and marked by grief and sorrow to the greatest degree. But then they heard this wonderful message. The Lord had visited His people and giving them bread. And what was that? We'll go to the very end of Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, and it says this, the last words of this chapter, they came to Bethlehem. They came to the house of bread. Let's read it that way. That helps us to see the connection of thoughts. They came to the house of bread in the beginning of, the, of barley harvest. In other words, the house of bread that was empty at the start of the story is now full again. Now, my dear friend, I think you can see right away the significance of this because in these details there's a predictive view of what happened when the Lord humbled Himself and was born at Bethlehem. It meant that in this world of famine and emptiness and destitution, Jesus Christ was born in the house of bread as the one who is the bread of life. John 6, some remarkable statements to that effect. Verse 33, here's what it says in John 6, 33. For the, these are the words of the Lord Himself. For the bread of God, the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And so the Lord says that as an indication, a revelation of who He is. There's one of the Lord's names, the bread of God. 
He came down from heaven. You see, when the Lord was born at Bethlehem, what was happening? God was visiting His people and giving them bread. That is, all His people throughout all time, there's a visitation on their behalf. There's someone born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, who's called the bread of God. And why has He come? He has come to fill the hearts of men and women with all the good things of the gospel, all the blessings and benefits and advantages that He conveys to them as a result of who He actually is. In John 6, that same chapter, verse 38, the Lord says this, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And so, the second place to which I take you in the Bible, and really there's very little in between Genesis 35 and uh, Ruth chapter 1 about Bethlehem. In fact, maybe nothing at all, maybe a bare mention. But the second main event concerning Bethlehem in the Bible, again, it brings us to our Savior. It's again underlining why He was born in Bethlehem, because He is the bread of God that came down from heaven to give life unto the world. The third time, it's had three references. The third one, third time we meet Bethlehem is in 1 Samuel 16. Please turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And verse number 1 says, The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And then look at verse number 4. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake. First Samuel 16, verse 4. Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. Now turn over quickly to chapter 17 and look at verse number 12. 1 Samuel 17, 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite. There's this word again, Ephrathite. Or Ephrath as it is in other places, or Ephrata. David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And what we're finding here is Bethlehem stands out in this chapter in relation to a certain family, the family of Jesse. It's described in other places as the poorest of the families. A family that is not possessing or possessed of any prominence or importance whatsoever. But into that family a boy is born. And that boy is called David. And that boy will become the progenitor of the greater David who will be born in the very same place in Bethlehem all those hundreds of years later on. And so because David was born in Bethlehem himself, it was necessary that Christ should have been born in Bethlehem for that reason as well. Because David was destined to be a forerunner of David or a foreshadower of Christ and a foreshadower of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, Christ came to fulfill all that David typified and David foreshadowed. Now look in 1 Samuel 16 at verse 13. And notice these words. 
And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There is the anointing of David. And as he's anointed with the oil, we find that he's also anointed by the Holy Spirit. Do you not see in that what happened to our Savior there at Jordan? When he was set apart to be a a prophet, a priest, and a king. In fact, you'll find that David acted in all three roles. In certain times, in certain ways. David was a prophet, obviously. He wrote Scripture and he spoke the Word of God. David was a priest because there was at least one time when David offered sacrifice. And David certainly was a king. And now, in the whole story in 1 Samuel 16, we have a prediction of what's going to happen at a future time. This man, this young man, David, who's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit continues with him from that day forward, we are told. He points to our Savior and to His anointing by the Holy Ghost as one who came in humility and in lowliness and in, in, in that base fashion, born into that little town, and yet filled with the Spirit of God, exalted to the throne of God and reigning forever at the right hand of the Father, as we've already seen. Ah, my dear friend, Bethlehem. And all that the Bible shows to us about Bethlehem reminds us of Christ in His humility. And yet, running alongside the reference to His humility, we find that there are pointers to His exaltation, to His greatness, to His glory. We will see more about that as we move on here. So there's Christ in His humility. There is also Christ in His activity. I want you to turn back to Micah 5, to our text, and look at this verse again. And may the Lord help us as we look at these words, because they are deep words. And that's Micah 5, verse 2, and it says in the center of the verse, or toward the end of the verse, really, whose goings forth have been of old, or from old, from everlasting, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's a tremendous statement regarding the activity of the one born at Bethlehem. And concerning his activity, there are two phases of it. There is his eternal activity. Now look closely with me at those words where it says, whose goings forth have been from or of old, from everlasting. The word old means literally before time. It signifies that which is eternal. And so here are actions or activities of our Savior of a certain kind that have been taking place, the prophet tells us, from before time. You know, if there ever was a verse that proves the pre-existence of Christ, this is it. There are many, of course, but here's one of them. His goings forth have been from eternity, before time. Then the phrase there where it says the days are everlasting, from everlasting, actually literally reads in the Hebrew, from the days of eternity. You could not get clearer language. Of old, 
That means before time, that which is eternal. And then to substantiate that, there comes in this other phrase, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. My dear friend, our Savior is from before time. He is from the days of eternity. He's preexistent. He possesses the full, uncreated, divine essence that belongs only to God because He is God. He is God the Son. I know, and I say it right away, that there is deep mystery here. And it must be said. The terms here present the fact that from all eternity Christ as the second person of the from all eternity, Christ as the second person of the Trinity engaged in certain activities or operations within the Godhead along with the Father and the Spirit. And again I say there's a lot of deep, in fact very much deep mystery to that truth, but it's truth nonetheless. And that's why you and I must go to Bethlehem today and look at that little babe as it were. Cast your mind to Bethlehem. He lies in that manger. The Bible makes that clear. He's an infant just born from the physical dimension. He is weak. He is helpless. He's dependent on his mother. And we're dealing there, of course, with his humanity. But that same person in the form of that little babe is the second person of the Godhead whose goings forth, whose operations within the Godhead had been taking place from eternity. That means throughout eternity. And what a marvelous truth we have here. This is a truth, of course, that the devil hates. This is a truth that the cults despise and all of them seek to undermine it. This is a truth that the modernist down through time has sought to undermine and repudiate altogether. The great truth of the trinal God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit eternally fellowshipping, purposing, ordaining, covenanting together to save sinners. And our salvation is to be traced right back into the goings, the motions, the movements, the operations, and the activities between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in their eternal counsels. That is marvelous, men and women. I try to get it across to you today as best I can. I'm only a man, and there's no man who has either the knowledge of this truth because we see it in Scripture, it's clearly there, but it is inexplicable. You only can go so far. And therefore, I want you to get a hold of it this morning afresh that the God you serve is a Trinitarian God. He's the God who has existed from all eternity in the persons of the Godhead. One God, that means one divine essence, one divine nature, 
But the Father possesses that full essence, and the Son possesses it, and the Spirit possesses it, and that's what the Bible reveals. You may say, what are you talking about? The essence of God, the divine essence, that He is God. He's possessed of an essence in which you see the attributes, for example, of all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, God the Father possesses those attributes, but so does God the Son, and so does God the Spirit. Study your Bible, and you will see it. And in that way, we see proof of the Trinity. But the point is, here we have it. It's said of this little babe, born in Bethlehem, that his goings have been from eternity. And in that case, you have the eternal activity of Christ. But then you see, there's also the temporal activity of our Lord Jesus. His goings forth have been from of old, from before time and from eternity. But the inference is that the goings of Christ continue out of eternity into time with regard to His birth, with regard to His becoming man. This is the glorious thing. In other words, when the Lord was born, and I've already intimated this and touched on this clearly, but let me say it again, when the Lord was born, He not only had become man, but He did not cease to be God. And I like to put it that way because Christians need to be reminded of that. And that's why we must treat the Lord's birth with reverence. The world has taken the birth of the Lord and turned it into revelry and drunkenness and folly and wickedness and sin. And the Christian must not go down that road. I was just reading Spurgeon another day. And Spurgeon made certain points such as, well, we have no idea of the real date when the Lord was born. And that's absolutely true. In fact, we'd be certain and sure it wasn't the 25th of December. Not at all. But you know what Spurgeon said? I wish there were 12 such days in every year to get our families together and get a bit of peace. Wouldn't that be great if you had 12 days like Christmas Day where you can shut the door and put on a good fire and a big pot of soup and all that goes with it and have a nice day. Because to me, that's what Christmas is really all about. It's a family day. But let's not forget these, lo- these truths about our Savior who came. When I say a family day, I'm keenly aware of the broken hearts and tears that many of you have shed during this year. And no matter how long your loved ones have gone, you'll still shed it here. And that's only right. Because our seats are empty. And our voices are silent. And they're not around the fireside. And you can't help but miss them. And so we do remember them. But my friend, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord in the midst of your family gatherings. 
Remember the one whose goings forth not only are eternal but temporal. He stepped into time. I wish I had more time, talking about time, to develop that. But let me just say this with regard to his temporal activity. This happened even before he was ever born. The Lord came into time at different stages. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verse 8? They heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. That was Christ. They sought to hide from Him. I mean, Adam and Eve. They displayed a pattern, sadly, that was the evidence that they were now fallen, that they were now sinners, and they couldn't face Jesus Christ, who took on a human form. He's called the voice of the Lord there in Genesis 3.8, and He walks in the garden. And so they run to hide. And you know, men have been doing that ever since. When he was born, what does it say? What does John say? John 1.11, he came on to his own, to the Jewish nation, and they received him not. But then verse 12, but as many as received him, to them give he power, authority to become the sons of God. You see, he came to the Garden of Eden after men fell, and it was a harbinger of the fact that he would come into the world one day and take our humanity permanently unto himself and appear among men. But he got the same response. He came unto people, his own nation, Jewish people. They wouldn't have him. But the world in general doesn't want Christ. They're against him. They despise him. Thank God there's a, a people who accept Him, who are brought to know Him. In what category are you? Are you one of those of whom it is said, He came and they received Him not? Or are you in the other group? But as many as received Him, to them and to them only, He gives the right, the authority to become the sons of God. My dear friend, Jesus Christ is still coming into the world through the preaching of the Word. He's walking among men. He's revealing Himself to you. He's speaking to you. Are you listening? Have you come to trust Him? Have you come to rest in the finished work? Have you come to have faith in the atonement that He made there at Calvary? Or you take Genesis 18. There's another time when the Lord appeared, when His goings forth took on a temporal nature. And he came to Abraham. It's a marvelous story there in Genesis 18. He came. There were three of them who came, but two of them were angels, and the other one was the Lord. I haven't time even to turn you to that chapter, but you read Genesis 18 and read there of the features of that chapter where the, the one who was the Lord, Abraham, stayed with him and the other two went on to Sodom and Gomorrah to bring God's judgment down on those people for their wickedness. But Abraham, he stood before the Lord because one of the three was Christ. He saw him. Abraham prayed to him. It's a wonderful passage. There's the Lord going forth in time temporarily to meet with one of his servants. What about Genesis 32? Another great event in the life of a patriarch, namely Jacob. And there is Jacob wrestling with the, uh, with the, with the Lord. 
And there's Jacob changed as a man of God. He was a man of God from the time he saw the ladder and he, and he came to faith in his God and in the promised Redeemer. But in Genesis 32, he's there as a Christian. He's there as a believer. But the Lord takes a fresh dealing with him. There are times, folks, when we need fresh dealings with God and He needs to take fresh dealings with us. And that's the nature of Genesis 32 at Peniel. And Jacob cries, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Who was that? Jacob was wrestling with a man, we're told, for, uh, in the earlier verse or two in that passage. But farther down, what does Jacob say? I have seen God face to face. He was wrestling with the God-man in one of his pre-incarnate appearances, and the God-man touched him. And as a man of God, he was never the same again. And so, you have Christ in his activity. It's this. Yes, those mysterious goings forth within the Godhead contained in the Trinity from all eternity. But then the visible and the physical and the temporal goings forth. Among men, Christ walking among men, God covenants to save sinners. He sends His Son to be among them, to take their nature, to die in their place, but to rise again and go back to heaven and pray for them and then come at the end of time to take them all home. Could you get a better message than that? There isn't one. The activity of our Lord. Finally, Micah 5, 2 we have Christ in His monarchy. It says there, again toward the end of the verse, He that is to be ruler in Israel. Ruler in Israel. Remember what the wise men said when they came to Bethlehem after the Lord had been born? I mean, I say it again, about two years later. Work it out yourself from Matthew 2. It's clearly there. What was their question? Where is he that is born king? Search all history and no one else has ever been born king. Yes, many have been born princes. Only a few of them have ever made it to be king. But there's only one person who was ever born king, and that's what's been said here. Him or the man, the person here, ruler in Israel. Now, his rulership has to be spiritual in nature. Because when the Lord came, he had no throne, no palace, no royal prerogatives of an earthly kind, and he's had none ever since. The Lord is king, yes, of all nations, in the sense of his sovereign oversight and control of all nations. But Jesus Christ is king only in the hearts of his people. That's where he reigns. That's where he rules. As in human hearts who have come to know him, he draws them out of the world of darkness, whether they're Jew or Gentile. He delivers them from the power of darkness and 
He translates them into the kingdom, his own kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son, God's dear son, as Paul says to the Colossians. And then one day he will come and he will put down all his enemies and that's when the world will see the kingship of Christ. And that's when they will actually come under the awful wrath of the king born in Bethlehem when he comes. But his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Whether it's in the past or the present or in the future, it's a spiritual kingdom. And I ask you again, is he ruling over your life? Are you in submission to him? Has he full sway in your heart? Is he your king? Are you his loyal, believing, trusting, subject, obedient? As best you can be, as a sinner saved by grace, but some sit here today and no obedience to the Lord, no subservience to his will. Christ in his humility, Christ in his activity, Christ in his monarchy. It's all here. Let us worship him and adore him and lift him up. Let us bow in prayer and may the Lord bless his truth to us and may we go away rejoicing in it. Father in heaven, use thy word, we pray. Make it a blessing to those who are thine. Bring it with freshness to hearts. May it be used for thine own eternal praise in the lives of many. And may the Savior be magnified. Hear prayer and go with us now. Bring us again this evening and meet with us here in thy house. And may the Holy Spirit move along as we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.